0: Welcome to Alessia's Divine Comedy, A Journey Through Dante's Masterpiece, a read-along podcast hosted by me, Alessia Cesana Harris. This is episode 79, Paradiso, Canto Dodicesimo, The Seventh Day, Overnight. If this was an episode of Friends, it would be titled The One with a Franciscan Praising a Dominican because the canto is the counterpart to the previous one. Saint Bonaventure, Franciscan mystic called the Seraphic Doctor, will appear with the second cohort of the Spiritus Sapienti, and the canto's main theme is the eulogy he gives to Saint Dominic. But I guess I got ahead of myself, again. The canto opens with the souls returning to their dancing around in a circle, soon to be surrounded by another circle of twelve souls one such soul, declares that Charity moves him to talk about the founder of the Order of Preachers, since St. Thomas has given such praise to the founder of his own Order. And that is only the right that the glory of men who laboured for the same goal would shine together. I'm not even sure this sentence makes any sense, but I am only two sips of coffee down, so I can't expect my brain to be in any better shape. So, I've already mentioned the saint in question is St. Bonaventure. For those who are unfamiliar, his mysticism is not the only interesting thing about him. He was born five years before St. Francis died in the Papal States and lived until 1274 when he died in Lyon. He spent a fair deal of that life in France, especially at the University of Paris, where he studied with St. Thomas Aquinas. What a class that must have been! He was a scholastic philosopher and theologian, the seventh Master General of the Order of Friars Minor. And the Cardinal Bishop of Albano near Rome, in that capacity, he went to attend the Council of Lyon, which is why he died there. He is also a Doctor of the Church, and some consider him the greatest Augustinian philosopher of his age. He was not only a rigorous academic and preserver of orthodoxy, after the publication of a radical work by Gerard of Borgo San Donnino. Uh, without any supervision led to enforcing of a rule that no Franciscan was to publish without the approval of his superiors. He was also really keen on restoring the rule of St. Francis as the povello d'Assisi left it to us. Despite some criticism, he attracted by modern thinkers for that rule that I just mentioned, which has been seen by some as putting obstacles to the work of the Doctor Mirabilis Roger Bacon, and in fact made the Franciscans a dominant order in the intellectual sphere as late as the coming of the Jesuits, while the reputation of the Blackfriars for intellectualism endured through the ages. Perhaps it's my limitations, but I can't think of any great Franciscan thinkers of the present or more contemporary time in numbers that are anywhere near the medieval hegemony that they had in the universities, or even the Dominican second number. I can, however, name plenty of mistakes. The contrast makes Saint Bonaventure one of a kind in my eyes, and like St. Thomas Aquinas and his deep devotion to the Eucharist, a model of the Christian life for a bookish woman like me. But I digress. Those quite keen to prove that Dante was a 3rd rate Franciscan may not like this canto very much. Although it's a great Franciscan speaking, but I like to think that even if he were one, he was able to recognize the gift of the rival order to the church and how it's only a limited human perspective that sees differences as a threat. In fact, Dante's language is very militaristic here. He calls him the other duke, which has the connotation of being a military general rather than the fluffy view of dukes of a peace that we have now. Saint Dominic and Saint Francis were fighting for the soul of the church in a own warring states of over and heresy. Dante is quite open in describing the church as an army here, while he emphasized the nobility of character in the words that he used in Canton XII. And it's not difficult to see how the structure of an army would apply here. We have different branches taking control over different strategies, sea, air and land. You have people at the top controlling the overall strategy and then people at the top of each controlling the overall strategy within their domain. And then the chain of command goes lower, with people handling smaller numbers of soldiers to be effective in battle. It would make sense that God would raise more than one great saint and give each of them something different to offer that would complement the other talents to achieve a unitary goal. It's not even something unintelligible to the human mind, it's so basic, it's something most of us would come up with ourselves. So, the format of the eulogy is similar to what we read yesterday, and so we see the life of Saint Dominic, which began at the opposite side of where Saint Francis has begun, in the West. Far from implying the superiority one over the other, I think the language is meant to stress to us the complementarity. Saint Dominic is described in terms that would not be wrong for a knight from the tradition of the chanson des gestes. And the scene tells us about how Saint Dominic's mother had a premonition in a dream because of how his mind had been full of virtue ever since its creation. There are two versions of the dream in different biography. In one version she saw a dog leaping from her womb, carrying a torch in its mouth and setting the world on fire. In another, she saw a patron saint, the Spanish Benedictine Saint Dominic of Silos, telling her that she would have a son uh, who would be a shining light to the church. This was after she had gone to his shrine to pray for a third son. Then we get what is probably a reference to how his godmother saw a star on his forehead at his baptism, when his mother had seen a moon. Because I haven't been able to find what dream she had, but I found this story, and in some versions he appeared in the, a dream rather than being an image that appeared on him while they were in person. Of course, whether the boy was named after the benedictine saint or not, the name still means belonging to the master, which in Christian terms is to say he was consecrated to the Lord. It is no surprise that Dante would present the baptism in the same way that we look at the mystical marriage of Saint Francis with Lady Poverty, only in this case the bride was faith, and the fruits of this union were many. And it's not to say he did not embrace poverty and humility too, as I already mentioned it yesterday. He showed holiness from the very start, with a Terzina relating to us acute anecdotes of him as a baby being alert on the floor, looking at his nanny as if we were saying he was born for that. Then we get one with a play on words with the names of Saint Dominic's parents, Felix and Joan. The former is quite easy, it means happy while the other is a bit more sophisticated. The name John means grace of God. The implication is that the coming of the great saint had been providentially paved by the generations before him. After all, as I mentioned yesterday, his mother is a blessed. Then we jump to him as a grown-up, quickly becoming a master in theology, not because of love of the earthly goods, for that it'd be better off being a canon lawyer, as difficult for us to imagine that as it is. No, it was after divine wisdom, also love for the Lord, and out of this love it began to tend to the vineyard of God, that is the church, which would soon dry up if not taken care of. And the pontiff recognised these efforts, not with money, which belongs to the poor, but with the honour of a mission, conveying heresies. And so, like a river coming from a high source, it vigorously dedicated itself to that job, focusing the most strength where it was most needed namely the hot spots of the Albigensian heresy and from him smaller rivers started to flow, irrigating the whole of the land, reviving all the plants which were the faithful. Now we see him depicted as one wheel of a chariot with Francis as the other and how for the chariot to be stable and strong it was necessary that both wheels were excellent. After such great praise we saw the lamentation of the state of the Franciscan order, like the black counterpart, the Grey Friars had a few who were faithful to the rule and a lot of degenerates. To address the problem, two factions had arisen, both mistaken. One was led by Ubertino da Casale, who wanted to make the ruler stricter and would eventually set up the spirituals as a separate branch from the main order, and then find himself accused of heresy and consequently falling off the radar. The other faction was led by a name I haven't read in a decade, Matthew Aquasparta, a great philosopher who was a pupil of St Bonaventure himself, and then became the Master General of the Order. He favoured a more relaxed interpretation of the rule, and put stock into continuing the work started by his master of keeping the intellectual tradition of the Order alive, while also being involved in diplomacy in the crazy situation that was Italy at the time of the poem. It's no surprise that Dante would find a way to bring criticism of someone who wasn't the good side of Boniface VIII, even when his views of the rule are not as large as the poem makes it sound like. Then we finally get to hear who was speaking on along, and did not only introduce himself, but also the other souls with him. Two of the first few followers of St Francis, Illuminato da and e Agostino d'Assisi. Blessed used Saint Victor, French cardinal and scholastic philosopher, and theologian, who was known for his mystical experiences. Petrus Comestor, another French scholastic. Then we have Peter Spain, who was Pope John the Twenty-First. He remembered for his twelve treatise on the Summa Theologicalis. He was pos- posthumously accused of being a necromancer, an accusation that was in fact raised against every pope who was an intellectual and his death was painted by some as God stopping him from writing radical works. The reality is that he was orthodox, as well as a great figure with regards to the progress of logic and the medical sciences. Following him are the prophet Nathan, whose life is recorded in the 2nd book of Samuel, the 2 books of Chronicles and the 1st book of Kings. With him are the Ascet and later patriarch of Constantinople and Elisha's father Saint John Chrysostom, with St. of Aosta and the grammatician Aelius Donatus. I will probably need three episodes more or less to do justice to Chrysostom, so I'll only say that his name means John the Golden Mouthed in praise of his eloquence. St. of Aosta, also known as St. Ansel of Canterbury in this part of the world, having been Archbishop from 1093 to 1109, or Anselm Dubec Bec in France for the Benedictine monastery to which he was attached. He was of course another theologian and philosopher. I'm not even sure why I'm saying that, given that we we are here and that's like literally what everybody is. I could have just made it obvious if someone had any other intellectual claims like Elius Donatus, who was the man that made torturing generations of students with Latin grammar possible. He was the author of As Grammatica and some other treaties which formed the basis for the entire school system from the fourth century until we decided that the liberal arts were not important anymore, and we just need to teach kids how to pass a test. He also wrote a commentary on Virgil, just putting it out there because I miss him really. Then we see the final two souls: Saint Rabanus Maurus, a Frankius Benedictine monk who had been engaged in all sorts of intellectual pursuits, most notably the Encyclopedia de rerum naturis, which means "On the Things of Nature." Known also as On the Universe, it was the most comprehensive work of general knowledge at the time, recording in 22 books all that was known in the 9th century. He is also the author of the hymn Veni Creator Spiritus, and I don't think the two are unrelated. He was truly a remarkable man. The second one is Joachim Fiore, described here as having prophetic abilities and generally considered to have been at least one of the most important apocalyptic thinkers of his age. He founded an order, as well as inspired followers of his eschatology and historicist theories, who ended up as a millennial theoretical group called the Joachimites, as well as actually the Dulcinians, that we have already met in the past. Of course Dante could place him here because he himself escaped such condemnation, and it was all they are doing in misinterpreting their works. The canto ends with Saint Bonaventure telling us that Saint Thomas's ardent courtesy and elegant speech inspired him to come and praise Saint Dominic, as well as inspired the other souls to come along too. Given how long we are spending in each of the higher spheres, it's no surprise that we have one cantica spanning about two days. I've lost count of how many counties we've been in the sphere of the sun already. We'll see tomorrow whether we get to move along or not. And yes, I said tomorrow. I'm recording ahead of time once again after the Great Bronchitis, so it will be tomorrow. Until then, then. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Alessia's Divine Comedy, a journey through Dante's masterpiece. Thank you also to Alexander Nakarada for the music, which is for ten or Etz if it was not meant as a Roman numeral, and is available in the public domain. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at alessia underscore or on my blog www.chickencatholic.com.